Our scripture reading today is taken from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, church, a couple of things before we jump into this text that Bradley just read. It's Father's Day. We are grateful uh, for the dads in our community um, who love well and love imperfectly and are learning to acknowledge uh, those shortcomings. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things a father could do, not be perfect, but admit when he's not and show his weakness. And I've just seen that example in our church family quite a bit. So there's a lot of gratitude in me today, let alone for my own four children. Um, But there's also some grief. I was watering the plants this morning and thought about my father-in-law, who I never got to meet. And um, the grief of a lost relationship that you never had is uh, probably something many of us can relate to uh, on a day like Father's Day. And so We just want to acknowledge the complexity of a day like this. There's incredible gratitude. Many of us have had incredible examples as fathers, many of us who are friends to this day. Um, Many of us have not had great examples, whether because of a negative example or the absence of relationship. And so I pray that in your gratitude and in your grief today that I share with you that we would all be pointed to our Heavenly Father. Wherever we've seen the goodness of fatherhood, um, it points us directly to our Heavenly Father. And wherever we see that grief, we see the comfort, a need for our Heavenly Father. Um, And so I'm grateful to be numbered among uh, you men today uh, and grateful to grieve with you uh, as well in that complexity. We also want to acknowledge tomorrow is um, Juneteenth. It's a day that our country celebrates something that a lot of black Americans have celebrated for a very long time. Uh, but we finally do it uh, as a nation just only recently when the end of slavery and the announcement of emancipation got to Galveston, Texas, um, really much later than it should have. And I think it's an invitation to us, especially a predominantly white church, to acknowledge and ask the Lord um, that whatever far reaches of our own soul, um, the the vision of true humanity and of love for our neighbor and of something that... um, can only be described as white supremacy, until that's weeded out in our hearts, then that gospel work of reconciliation that Paul writes about in Galatians chapter 2, where God tears down the dividing walls of hostility, has not yet been fully achieved, or rather Ephesians chapter 2. And so I think it's an opportunity for us to not just celebrate with our black brothers and sisters and neighbors the true full measure of freedom, but say, Lord, would you weed out any vestiges in our church family and our own hearts where that is not yet a fully realized reality and understanding of your gospel. Um, And so we approach a day like that, not just as Americans, but as as Christians. Um, With that being said, let's consider Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 20. 
Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here, and we've been uh, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount for the past couple of weeks. Um, and I think today we arrive at something that uh, many of us wrestle with. Maybe we don't even know that we wrestle with it. But I think many Christians wrestle with their relationship with the law in some very clear and overt ways, and some are quite unwitting. They're just underneath the surface, and that's what Jesus talks about today. See, God's free gifts of things like grace and forgiveness and love complicate, I think, our understanding or application of the Bible's moral teaching. In other words, if, if I'm received into relationship by grace, what do I do with all these rules? What do I do with all of the regulations and the clear commandments that the Lord has laid out in, scriptures, in the Scriptures if I am loved by Him? And I think this is particularly true, certainly true as we consider socially divisive issues like sex and gender, sexual orientation, abortion, racism, immigration, and so on. But it's also true when we think about the Scripture's vision for our character. I think in this day and age, we get a lot of attention about what the Scriptures say about social matters, but I think one of the ways to help us approach those social matters is to be very clear about the Scripture's instruction about our character, God's instruction about our anger, about humility, about generosity, about greed, and so on. So we're not just talking about interpretation. In other words, a passage is meaning. What do you think this verse means? We're talking about authority. Does God have power in your life? See, that's really important. It's not just do we agree on what this verse says, but do we agree you're supposed to somehow submit to that teaching and see it applied to your life? Are you with me about the difference? It's not just arguing in sort of ivory towers of theology, what does that verse say, but are we a people who are submissive to God's Spirit and to God's Word? See, in Jesus' day, I think people wrestled with this too, their relationship with the law. And the way that Jesus speaks about the spiritual life, the people and the traditions he interacts with, frustrates these preconceived notions of holiness and obedience and worship. And so in our passage this morning, he assures some of his concerned contemporaries that he's not doing away with God's law. He sort of like calms the religious crowd. He's like, I'm not trying to get rid of the law. Now, while that might have calmed some of the nerves of Jesus' first listeners, I wonder for some of us if it's really frustrating. In a city like Chicago, to hear that the Lord is not doing away with the law begins to undo us a little bit. See, they were drawn to religion centered on things like order and purity. But I think today, in a context like ours, that we're drawn to a spirituality centered on love and not rules. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about a relationship to God's law. I want to talk about what Jesus calls righteousness. And here's how we'll organize our time. We'll look at religious righteousness, we'll look at modern righteousness, and we'll look at Jesus' righteousness. So we'll look at religious, modern, and then Jesus' righteousness through this particular text. So let's, let's ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is not a dead text. It's not just a collection of things that happened. It is a collection of what you have said and what you are saying, what you have done and what you are doing, who you were and who you are. So help us to read it like that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples. People who voted yes began to follow Jesus as the Messiah, as Lord. Um, and he has just walked away in context in Matthew chapter 5 from a crowd. 
He walked away from these listeners. And the crowd in the, in the Gospels always represents sort of everybody, sort of not a particular group or a particular vision, tradition, or idea. It's just everybody. It's a collection. It's a crowd. And so he moves away from that cl- crowd, and he goes to this hillside, and all of his disciples follow him, and they sit with him. And so Jesus then begins to teach a sermon that is meant for them, meant directly for his first listeners, his first followers. And what does he communicate? He communicates what we've simply called this interim vision, this interim vision of the kingdom, that is the will and the way of God or his rule and reign as king. It's Jesus' vision for what we're supposed to do in the power of his resurrection between his first coming, it's what's recorded in the gospels, and his second coming, what's promised in his word. So what are we supposed to do between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ? And Jesus says this, here is what I want you to be about. Here's who I want you to be. Thus far in the sermon, Jesus has spoken about the character of his disciples. That's, that's verses 1 through 12. And then he talked about the influence of his disciples. We looked at that last week in verses 13 through 16. And today we're talking about the righteousness of his disciples. So we look at the character, the influence, and now the righteousness. From the way Jesus speaks, it seems that some people are really concerned. Can you imagine that? Jesus had a lot of people who are critical of him, frustrated with him. And so if anyone's ever been frustrated with you or doesn't like that you come to church or doesn't like you talk about Jesus or doesn't like that you live some kind of way, praise God, you are in good company with the Son of the living God. A lot of people were frustrated with the way he was talking. At the very least, Jesus understands this, that his particular brand of righteousness was not popular with a particular crowd, and so he understood that the way that he was going about his business, the way that he was going about his father's business could have easily been misunderstood. And so he begins with a couple of negative statements. Meet me in verse 17, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Notice he says two negative statements, do not think and I have not come. In other words, it would be easy for you to think this is why I have come or that this is what you should think about the law. I have not come to do away with the law. I have not come to change the way that you follow God's word. Why? Well, because he was welcoming and he was loving people that neither followed nor knew the law precisely the way that a lot of people did. And so he goes, I know what you're thinking. I know where your mind is going. In other words, Jesus is welcoming people into his kingdom whom the religious class had already deemed unrighteous. So this is what they're trying to harmonize. There is this rabbi, this teacher, the religious law. He's teaching them the, the, the Torah or the, what we would call the Old Testament. But all these people are showing up that did not fit their description of righteous people. They're trying to harmonize all of that. So you're, you're using words that we recognize, but you're, the company you're keeping and the way that you're going about this doesn't make sense. So let's try to see if we can get to the bottom of this. The law and the prophets, that's what Jesus talks about here in verse 17, is sort of like biblical shorthand. It's a way of speaking about the entirety of the Mosaic law, the rules and regulations for God's people that was given or ushered into the time of Moses. It's what we call the Old Testament today. So Jewish people in Jesus' day were holistically committed to obeying every letter of the law. Their lives are centered and found meaning and definition through their compliance and submission to the law. It's not too much to say that the law was their identity. This is how they knew who they were. That reverence even persists today in conservative Jewish communities. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs explains it this way, that the holiest object in Judaism is the book, the scroll of the law. 
The reverence we pay it is astonishing. We stand in its presence as if it were king, dance with it as if it were a bride, and if, God forbid, it is desecrated or ruined beyond repair, we bury it as if it were a relative who had died. So it's not too much to say, I don't think, that the law simply uh, isn't simply a text, but it is an intricate part of the Jewish self-concept about how they understand their personhood. So this is why the Pharisees and the scribes, that, that religious community, many Jewish people were having such a hard time with Jesus' teaching. He was relating to the law in a very different way, a way that they did not expect. And it's really easy for us when we read the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, to just go, these Pharisees really just didn't get it, and, and to sort of shun them. But in, in the day, we would have venerated them. We would have respected them. We would have looked at their life and probably even prayed, God, would you make me more like the scribes and Pharisees? They seem really righteous. They seem like they are the ones who've got it. In fact, there are many different kinds of people outside of the Jewish tradition who love the Bible, who embody this incredible faithfulness to God's Word and show an uncommon courage to live in a committed way to God's Word. Today, living in righteousness, nothing sways their commitment to God and His Word. Perhaps you have a grandparent like this or a friend or a parent or someone in your group who everybody looks around and goes, this is the person who always gets the answers right. This is the person who really has got it together, right? All of us are going to have this vision of someone in our life who really has it together morally or religiously. Or we can open up the Scriptures and we see a guy like Daniel who still was committed to pray even if his life was on the line. Sometimes I don't pray because I'm just tired. I just want to go to sleep, right? Daniel's like, bet, you're going to kill me? Still going to pray for everyone to see. Esther, what a great story Esther is. Where we often pump fake in the paint when, it, when there's cost about following God. She's like, if they take my life, they take my life. I am going to follow God. I'm going to take care of my people. These are people who we esteem, who show an uncanny ability to follow God's word and to follow his will, even in the face of great opposition. And the writer of Hebrews tells us not to look down on these folks, not to sort of be suspicious of them, as we often are with the scribes and Pharisees. What does he say? We're supposed to look at them with faithful zeal and aspire and be encouraged by them. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see, we're meant to follow this righteous example, an example of obedience from those around us and those who have come before us. But here's what Jesus is getting at and what I think he wants to teach us today. Your obedience, though, is not your identity. We are to be encouraged by their righteousness, we're being encouraged by their obedience, but your obedience and their obedience is not our identity. See, religious righteousness is all about obeying the rules. And it's important to recognize that Jesus isn't against obeying the rules. This is what I think he's, he gets at in the next two verses. That's what he's explaining. He's all about the rules. Look at verses 18 and 19. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus intended to observe and obey the word of God. However, he's also diagnosing a prevailing problem. 
See, often when we find our identity in obeying rules, we neglect the purpose, meaning, or heart behind a particular rule, don't we? We follow the rules not because we trust the lawgiver or the giver of those rules, but rather because we want to be known and seen as someone who follows rules. That's the identity piece, right? I don't really, I don't really love God. I don't really love His Word or trust His Word, but I just want everybody to know that I'm a rule follower. And in fact, when they're out of line, I will be the police, and I will make sure that they know that they have stepped out of line and they have done something wrong, Right? See, we follow the rules not because we trust the lawgiver, but because we want to be known as someone who follows rules. In other words, there's a shadow side to religious righteousness. This is what Jesus is highlighting. See, in obeying rules, we often fail to embody love. In our obedience toward rules and of rules, we often fail to embody love. And when that happens, when we obey the rules to the neglect of love, we get to religious fundamentalism. This is what Jesus is pinpointing. We get churches and traditions that are more interested in condemning sins or banning books or excusing racism than about loving our neighbors as ourselves. We get people, including me and including you, who are drawn to holiness even if it means disregarding mercy and ignoring the image of God in another human being. And as we'll see, what I think Jesus is teaching us today is he is unwilling to divorce the two. He is unwilling to allow rules to not embody love or rule followers to get their do's and don'ts right, but their heart stays corrupt. See, Jesus addresses this lack of love and integrity in religions, and sort of this religious version of righteousness in Matthew 23. If you want your hair to get blown back, read Matthew chapter 23. This, this Jesus does not fit the framework that many of us have of Jesus. See, in a string of condemnations in Matthew chapter 29, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and, get this, lawlessness. In this string, this barrage, Jesus calls the religious elites hypocrites no less than seven times. Seven times he calls them hypocrites. Now, that would have hurt my feelings, and yet I think what probably riled them up more than anything else is he said that they were lawless. Remember, These Jewish elites, what's their identity? The law. I want to be known as someone who obeys the law, who follows the law. And he says, you're lawless. You're lawless. How could he say that? Think about it. For a people who define themselves by adherence to the law, being called lawless was tantamount to saying, you don't even know who you are. You don't know who you are. And yet, that's exactly how severe Jesus understands the separation of doing works of righteousness outward and having a heart of righteousness inward. He's saying that is like disobeying the law, to be misaligned inwardly and outwardly. See, now while Jesus seems intent on explaining that he does indeed obey the law in the Sermon on the Mount and doesn't intend to abolish the law or what we're calling religious righteousness, he also gives us this more robust vision of our relationship with the law, which we'll call modern righteousness. Look again at verse 17, Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law, 
or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. There are those two negatives about what he's not doing. What's he come to do? To fulfill them. So Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law. He's come to fulfill it. But what's that even mean? What's the word fulfill mean? Well, it's not simply to obey the law, nor is it to replace the law. The word means to bring to completion, to bring to fruition, to bring to wholeness, to bring to its logical end or conclusion. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that the law began something, and now he is bringing that law's intended purpose to fulfillment or completion. This is exactly what Jesus explains for the rest of the chapter. Six different examples the rest of the chapter, which we'll go in detail in the next couple of weeks, but a cursory glance is really important here. So if you're in Matthew chapter 5, look at those subheadings, those sections broken down. In verses 21 through 26, he talks about anger, and he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Next, he says something about lust. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Then he gets to divorce. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And then he gets to oaths. You've heard it said, but what? I say to you. Then he gets to retaliation. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And then he gets to love. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Are you picking up on the theme yet? In each case, Jesus is highlighting a law laid out in the Old Testament. Here's the law. And then he says, here's how I'm fulfilling it. Here's the law. I'm not abolishing it, but here's how I'm fulfilling it. Specifically, what he is doing is he is demonstrating his own authority. He's saying, here's the word of God, but I say to you. I am the Word of God. I say to you, right? Specifically, he is demonstrating how he is reframing the law around the heart. He's demonstrating the purpose, the point, the meaning, the person behind the law. He's telling his disciples that the epicenter of their identity is not the law, but rather it's a matter of their heart. It's not about their relationship to rules, it's about their relationship with God. This is the lesson Jesus taught a wealthy spiritual seeker one day. Perhaps you know the story. This man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Perhaps many of us have pondered that same question. And Jesus told him, you know the law, right? You know the law. Have you followed it? And the man, you can sort of like feel him a little bit smug. Yeah, I've followed it since I was a kid. I got that on lock. I do everything. I'm awesome. I don't know if you've read the papers, but I'm dope, right? Here's then how the writer Mark finishes the scene. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Then Mark says, disheartened by the saying, he, that's the rich man, went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. What's the point? Well, the man had found a way to obey the law but not embody love. All of those laws that he followed since he was a kid was about a particular conclusion that had nothing to do with his relationship with the Lord. He was obeying the rules, but did not recognize love when it was staring at him in the face. Don't you love that moment when Jesus, when Mark says that he looked at him in the midst of his religious righteousness and he loved him? He loved him. Isn't it good to know that we have a God in the middle of our moral confusion and in the middle of our crazy ideas of righteousness? He looks at you and he loves you. Sister, in your confusion, he looks at you and he loves you. Brother, in your confusion, he looks at you and he loves you. 
You might be sitting here right now going, wow, my righteousness is a mess. He looks at you and he loves you. Modern righteousness is just about that. It's about embodying love. That's what fulfilling the law is all about. It's understanding and seeking the relationship or the reason behind the rule, not simply checking off do's and don'ts. In fact, this is what we learned a couple of months ago when we were in Romans. Remember, Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is what? The fulfilling of the law. The fulfilling of the law. Jesus fulfills the law first, not simply through compliance to the rules, but through love. This is where many modern people begin with their own understanding of morality and righteousness. Author Bell Hooks explains, the moment we choose to love, we begin to move against domination, against oppression. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move towards freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others. You see, the impulse to love, to see beyond the letter of the law, is so deeply human. That's been designed in you. It's been designed in you. It's been imprinted in you by way of the image of God to bring justice, liberation, and wholeness to your heart and to the hearts of others and to this world. But like obeying the rules, a righteousness which merely embodies love also has a shadow side. See, as much as an identity based solely on rules is incomplete, so too is an identity exclusively crafted by love. See, in the forthcoming list, Jesus is taking the next step, but he's still grounded in the truth of the law. Do you notice this? See, in many of our modern expressions of righteousness, we leave the truth behind for the sake of freedom and expression. Unwittingly, though, the absence of universal truth actually limits love. See, when our love is not grounded in ultimate reality, it shrinks into the eye of the beholder. It does the very opposite of what we espouse that it does. Instead of expanding love, it shrinks it. You see, love, therefore, is not the abomination or rather the ab abolishment of truth. Love is the fulfillment of truth. Author Rebecca McLaughlin sees this righteousness which embraces both truth and love as, this is what she says, the first tremors of the earthquake of God's love that will remake the world when Jesus returns. In other words, when the church brings together this law, obedience, truth, and love, seeing the other and loving our neighbors as ourself, something of the kingdom starts showing up that one day will come to its full and complete picture when Christ returns. Remember in John 8, when a woman is being stoned for committing adultery. And it's important that it's just the woman who is there, which is certainly an abomination of the religious leaders who are holding her for an account. So there is not simply sin, there is also injustice. There's also hypocrisy. And so Jesus steps in, in this complex situation, and he loves her. He loves her by protecting her from her manipulative accusers, but then he invites her into a life that is not freed from truth, but more grounded in it through love. He says, go and sin no more. He covers and protects her, even willing to take the stones for her, but doesn't therefore say, now go and do as you please. Through love, she is meant to embrace truth. That's neither religious, nor is it modern brand of righteousness. What's that? That's Jesus' righteousness. See, there's a bit of irony in Jesus' conclusion. I hope that you feel it. He tells us that 
we had better have a more robust or a better righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees did in the part of the kingdom. See, this is why we can't look at the Pharisees and go, those are the bad guys. Those are the bad guys, and now we're going to be the good guys. And we juxtapose those two sort of moral framework. Look again with me at verse 20. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Keep in mind, Jesus wants his disciples to understand the kingdom and to live out the ethics of that kingdom. Neglecting the law means being least in the kingdom, and applying righteousness is about being great in the kingdom. But this system of hierarchy Jesus is espousing is deeply nuanced. You see, we might assume that the Pharisees, those are the least people, right? After all, they've got that religious like righteousness that people have neglected love. But in fact, Jesus says our righteousness must surpass theirs. It must fulfill and go beyond where they have achieved. He's holding them up as this lofty target that we must have not just simply discredit or discharge, but learn from and build from. What could possibly surpass, though, their almost flawless moral conformity? See, if we looked at them in their day, we'd be like, I can't obey like them. I can't walk as they do. Well, what have we learned? Obeying the law does not replace love, and love does not replace obeying the the law. We're commanded to love. And love for God is expressed through what? Daily obedience to His Word. In other words, grace no more replaces the law than legalism fulfills the law. Let me say that again so we don't miss this. Grace no more replaces the law than legalism fulfills the law. That means that the Pharisees had not achieved righteousness because they had followed every letter of the law. But that also does not mean that we fulfill the law because we're gracious to everyone and let everyone off the hook and just call it mercy and grace and love. You see, the law was never meant to be strictly a guidance for life and being freed from moral stains. God's law was always about a relationship with Him. It was always meant to direct us toward a relationship. Here's what it's like to be in relationship with God. Not here's just how to live so that things go well for you. See, this is the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. This is the righteousness that enters the kingdom of heaven. See, religious righteousness misses the relationship. Modern righteousness misses worship. The righteousness which Jesus is articulating in the Sermon on the Mount is based upon a relationship with the Heavenly Father which results in humble worship which expresses itself through obedience. What's this mean? What does this really look like in community? It means when you sit in small group and someone is sinning, you should say, hey, I think that's sin. But you should do that as someone who knows they are deeply broken and a sinner as well. We should do that as people who are just as much enamored by the love of Jesus as we are the law of Jesus. We never choose one or the other. We always are learning to flex both at the same time. It also means that when we love someone, our desire to love them is not to give them permission to do whatever they want, but to help draw them near to closer to a holy God. See, Jesus' righteousness is about fulfilling the law. You see, the law was never meant to be strict, this guidance to keep us freed from these stains, but ultimately about shaping our relationship and our worship of God. This is the righteousness then that exceeds. It's a righteousness that enters the kingdom. And this righteousness is only possible because in Christ, 
we are found to be whole, and we found our real identity, our heart, our mind, our body, our spirit has been transformed in Him. Or we might say this righteousness is only a reality because through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have been made righteous like Him. That's the Apostle Paul's point to Corinth when he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So what? So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness, then, is not a character quality or reward for moral perfection. Righteousness is a person. Righteousness, or rather Jesus, is our righteousness. Therefore, the manner by which we become and embody righteousness is not by obeying the law or even loving God and loving others, which just becomes another law. Rather, Jesus' righteousness is received through faith and is embodied in a love which manifests in obedience. The Heidelberg Catechism is a series of theological questions and answers drafted in Heidelberg, Germany in the 16th century. And the 61st question I think is important and apropos for us today. They ask, why do you say that through faith alone comes your righteousness or you are righteous? And the answer, not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, It is because only Christ's sanctification, righteousness, and holiness make me righteous before God. And because I can accept this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than through faith. See, walking through Jesus' forthcoming instructions about fulfilling the law and love, I think this is precisely what we see, that Jesus accomplishes something that we now get to enjoy by grace through faith. See, Jesus is the only one who never murders nor does he hate, but he always loves. Jesus is the only one who never commits adultery, nor does he lust, but he always dignifies. Jesus is the only one who not only never wiggles out of marriage, nor does he divorce, but he's always faithful. Jesus is the only one who not only never breaks his word, nor does he swear, but he's always truthful. Jesus is the only one who not only never retaliates, nor returns evil for evil, but is always humble. Jesus is the only one who not only never hates his enemy, but loves them and prays for them. See, Jesus is righteous. Jesus fulfills the law. And by grace through faith, Jesus makes you righteous. See, your righteousness isn't about where you find your rules. Your righteousness is about where you find your identity. So church, are you more prone to obey the letter of the law to the neglect of loving your neighbor as yourself? Do you live with a religious righteousness? Or do you embody what you deem to be loving regardless of God's clear instruction and truth? Is it a modern righteousness for you? See, being a Christian in Chicago means, at least in my experience, you are going to face pressure from both sides all the time. In our church and in our groups, with Christian friendships, we will always be pressured to obey the law. What's God's word say? What's the word say? Are you being holy, being defined by holiness, right? That's going to be one pressure we have to be mindful of. In our work, and our social lives, we're going to constantly be pressured to embody love, to be defined by our acceptance. Are you loving people? Are you welcoming them? Are you not judging them? Are you accepting of everybody and everything? But do you see? Neither fully captures Jesus' vision of righteousness. Neither does. Yet in Him, we neither overlook nor do we define ourselves by the law. Why? Because He fulfills it. And in Him, we get to fulfill it. So in Him, what what really happens? In Him, self-righteousness is put to death. In Him, people-pleasing gets put to death. 
In Him, we get, we get to die to entitlement. In Him, we get to put fear of people to death. In Him, He makes us righteous. He puts to death all of these false sense and expressions of righteousness, and in us is resurrected true righteousness. We can learn, therefore, to bless our neighbors and honor the Lord at the same time. See, when religion in the modern world pressures you to choose, Jesus empowers us to find a third way, which he calls the kingdom of heaven. So may we embrace a righteousness like that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do need your help in this. I know I do. We need your help to understand when that pressure is closing in, when the impulse to find our identity in rules or in acceptance is greater than the true impulse of our soul from your spirit to find our righteousness in you. It can be so easy to try and say the right things at group and the right things online to make sure that everyone loves us and we don't make anyone upset. But that's not our righteousness. That's not our hope. Our hope, our righteousness, is found in your Son, who by grace through faith puts to death our self-righteousness and gives us his. And so I pray, Father, would you help me, would you help us to be a kind of people who find our identity in the right place, in the right righteousness, the righteousness that brings life and not death. We love you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.